So this week I was, um, I got to go be a part of my brother's ordination and now I have to call him reverend because he passed and <laughs> that's weird. But as we're getting ready to get on the plane, I'm riding the bus to DIA with my mom and we get on and we're the only two people on and so we sit up front next to the person that's driving the bus and he's a guy that has just immigrated here a little while ago from, uh, I think it was North Africa somewhere. And all of a sudden, he looks at me, and he goes, are you thankful? Uh, yes. And he looks at my mom, are you thankful? And she goes, well, yes. And he goes, I just don't understand people live in this country. O- okay, we're sorry. I mean, I didn't know what to do. He goes, and between F-bombs and every other thing, he told me how thankful he was to live in the United States. I mean, it was the weirdest thing. But at the end of it, we walked out of there, <laughs> And to be honest with you, I was pretty thankful. Part of it is, is I just think in some ways, not only is it living, you know, in a place like the United States, but I would just say this, we're followers of Jesus. My gosh, what is there not to be thankful for? And so this, this week, I hope you had a great week with family and with everyone, but uh, here's where we're going to go today. If you got your Bibles, open them up to uh, Ephesians 6. That's where we're going to be today, and we'll kind of dive into it a little bit. <coughs> but here's where we've gone. One of the things that we've, we've tried to do is to lay out this idea, not only what is the church, but why the church and who's the church. And, and we've spent the last few weeks, we spent about 11 weeks going through it. And so this is the last thing we're going to be talking about when we talk about the church. Now, one of the first things that we talked about when we talked about the church, and this is very important, the church is about Christ and his people. Whenever we talk about the church, that's one of the things we have to keep in our minds is that the church is about Christ and it's about his people. That's at the forefront of what it is. It's not about buildings. It's not about programs. It's not even about different things that the church might do. It's always about Christ and it's about his people. Now, it's a people. Now, here's the big thing, though, is that when we talked about it, we really tried to lay out this idea that that it's this group of people that have built their lives around Christ and his purpose. So in other words, it's not just a group of people getting together. We're not the Elks Club. We're not the Rotary Club. We're not whatever club you might be a part of. We're a part of a group of people that have wrapped their lives around Jesus, have chosen to say, Jesus, you are the king, and because you are the king and you've rescued us out of this darkness, we now will make our lives wholeheartedly and completely about you. We also then talked about the reality that because we're his people, we're a people of the book. We're a people of the word. And we brought to the forefront that, that, that it's not just about even doctrinal things or it's not about rules or it's not about different steps to, to somehow find something. We are about a book that tells a story, a story that has been elongated out that goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But this is what is important about it is that you, if you're a follower of Jesus, are a part of that story. And my hope was, as we talked about it, there would be an excitement, a sense that, oh my gosh, I am a part of the greatest thing ever. And God has always told stories. He's he's built into what he teaches and what he's about, a story, because we can disregard rules and we can disregard steps, but there's something about seeing yourself a part of this grand narrative. And that's why we talked about, we have baptism, this idea of what it means to join Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's why we have the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves of the the redemptive work of Jesus. In other words, the Bible is full and he calls us to just ongoingly tell story, the story about Jesus of which we're a part. 
But when Terry got up here to preach, and I loved that Sunday, he reminded us that faith, when we talk about faith, it's faith in that story. It's not just any old faith, it's faith in the story that encompasses this entire span. It's faith that is put together that now says, I'm going to join that story wholeheartedly. And when I walk by faith, I'm walking as part of that story. When I'm not walking by faith, I'm walking by my story. But we also then learned the beauty of the church is that the church now has leaders to then help us live that story. That these ones that are now given to the church to show how do we, the book of Ephesians talks about, deal with marriage and how do we deal with family and, and how do we deal just with the household and how the household works? How does it then deal with all the different realities of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? It's meant to be real and it's meant to be lived. And then we also talked about these leaders then help us to then learn how it is that what was done in my life, I'm gonna help others to do in their lives. And the person that we brought to the forefront on Reformation Sunday, the Sunday before the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, was this guy named Martin Luther. And again, I hope you loved hearing about this guy, Martin Luther, who in a lot of ways, I don't know why God chose him, but it was real and it was powerful the way he chose a guy from a coal mining town to change literally the world. And from that, then, we talked about, though, the thing that we learned is that the thing that was so impactful about him is he became all things to all people so he might save some. And then I don't know how many of you were here last week to hear Dave Giles speak, but it's also a reminder, he brought it to our forefront, is it's not just about the church in this area, but it's the church around the world. Now, here's the question, though, that I've been asking myself. What might stop us from being the church. This is the question we're gonna dive into a little bit as we look at Ephesians 6. See, I think sometimes we get excited about the fact that Jesus is victorious. He's gonna win this thing. There's gonna come a point in which every knee and every tongue, or every knee's gonna bow, every tongue is gonna confess. It'd be weird if your knee confessed. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I love hearing the end of the story But the question I've been asking for myself in this local church is what's gonna stop us from being the church? Now that's why I love that we've been in the book of Ephesians because Paul is gonna answer this question about the obstacles that the church faces. And he's gonna answer it from a way that I don't think we really believe what he's about ready to write. See, I think in some ways when I bring up Satan or the devil or the prince of the power of the air, or whatever it is that I bring up, we envision a caricature, a cartoon of who Satan is, and we really don't believe that he is real, and he's powerful, and he roams right now. It is the grand conspiracy of all time. It's why we have conspiracy movies. It's why we have movies like The Matrix, right? Do you want the blue pill or the red pill? Are we gonna go down the rabbit hole? The younger ones are going, what's The Matrix? (laughs) It's an old movie from 1999. (laughs) We constantly feel like there is conspiracy, but here's the thing, there is. And the grand conspiracy is that we don't see what's going on right now in the angelic realm, but there truly is a Satan, there truly are demons, they are roaming around and they're causing havoc all over the world, and we need to understand then, how is it that we deal with this particular reality that faces, if there really are demons, if there really is a Satan, what do we need to do? 
Now in Ephesians 6.10, if you got your Bibles, look there, and we're gonna kind of talk about this a little bit. How is it that then we deal, or how do we be a group of people that don't allow the church to stop? What is it that we need to be thinking about and understanding if we're gonna be a part of a group of people that do not hinder in any way where the church is going? Now Ephesians 6.10, he just says this, finally, be strong in the Lord. There's a key word, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now that little word finally is important to where we're gonna kind of talk about this today. The thing about Paul, if you've never studied some of his letters, is he loads up a word and he has meaning that drifts all the way back to the very beginning. In other words, this final word is he's looking at them saying, this is the last thing I need to tell you, church at Ephesus. And it's loaded with all kinds of meaning from the rest of the book of Ephesians that you have to understand. When he says finally, he's building all of this together to put it into a grand statement to help them understand what's gonna hinder the church. Now that word finally points all the way back to Ephesians 1.3 where the very beginning of it began to tell this story about God. Now here's what I think is one of the grand hindrances to the church. We forget our story. In fact, the first three chapters are all about Paul going, okay, you gotta understand your story. And he says, part of your story is, is that you have been blessed beyond anything that you can know in the heavenly places through Christ Jesus. All of you sitting here today, now I know the word blessed just sounds so weird. Oh, bless you, bless you. But this word blessed holds meaning. It's this Greek word that that has the idea that literally you can find content joy, content completeness, content happiness because of God. It is everything that people are looking for. They're looking for it. And in the book of Ephesians, I have found it and you have found it if you know Jesus. You are blessed. And then he begins to just tell the narrative of the salvation of Jesus from the very beginning when God chose us to the very end of being sealed when finally Jesus Christ will come back one day and he will be the all in all in verse 23, the grand champion. The problem is we forget it. We don't understand it. And so that's why Paul had to pray. He had to just get down on his knees and go, oh, I pray that you get this. I pray that God would give you wisdom and revelation to understand that you have the eyes of your heart open, that you may know the hope to which you've been called, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. He just kept praying, would you get this? And even all week as I've been praying for this morning, I've been praying, God, would you help our church to get this? See, I think when we don't get it, we get lethargic. And when we don't get it, we also then get apathetic. When you kind of forget who you are, this would be, I think, a a hindrance. When we forget who we are. When we don't just stop for a little bit and remind ourselves that we're kids of the king. That even Ephesians 2 talks about this idea that God being rich in this mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were these sinners that we were dead in our trespasses, he made us, just think about this, alive. Alive. You were dead and now you are alive. At least one person's excited. No, but I do just think we get bored with that. Yeah, that's what we are. No, this week I just stopped and I thought about it. On March 19th, 1993, Todd was dead. 
And he wasn't like kind of dead like Princess Bride. (laughs) He was all dead, completely dead. And God in his grace reached down and Todd wasn't just flailing going, help me. I was at the bottom of the ocean. He reached down, grabbed me, pulled me out, made me fully alive. And then look at this. And he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) Better than a turkey. Paul wants him to get this. He wants them to get that there was this rift that was happening between humanity and specifically he brings up the Greeks and the Jews and he talks about the fact that not only did Jesus solve this problem between us and God, but he's now in and through the church solving this problem across in and through all of God's people. He's now reconciling not only this way, but reconciling God's people together, pulling them together into this one new man is the way he puts it, this one new people And he says then in verse 16, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Do you want to know why we have problems in the world? Because Jesus doesn't reign in those particular places. One day, check this out, the Palestinian Jew problem will be solved. True? And it won't be solved till then. Paul wants us to get this. In fact, then he gets to the end of Ephesians 3 and he just lays down this final aspect of his prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And then he says, amen. And all God's people said? Okay, good. All right, here we go. Paul says, I want you to get this. But the mistake he doesn't want us to fall into is now just to go, oh, that's lovely. Look at us. All Jesus people and whatnot. Now he looks at them, verse one in chapter four, and he says, I therefore, prison Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Make it real. Don't play games. This is what this word finally is trying to get across to them is that don't forget who you are. The greatest hindrance of the church is that when we forget who we are in Christ and why God rescued us, he didn't just rescue us from hell. He rescued us with a calling that is worthy that we are now supposed to live worthily in that calling. We're to bring this thing to life. We're not only supposed to do that, but he says, now I testify you to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of the minds. Don't, don't walk like when you were still dead, but put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. In other words, change. Like, as I look out over this group of people, There is enough power in this room to be transformed, not only here, but enough power in this room to transform a city. Jesus is in the change business. I think for the longest time, the gospel we preached was just don't go to hell, and we missed the fact that Jesus doesn't want us to just avoid hell. Let's talk about a bottom line, low-rung Christianity. No, he said, I came that they might have bottom line Christianity. No, life 
And that's why he calls them now, be imitators of God as these beloved children and walk in this love. You're gonna see this word over and over again. Walk in it, learn to be it, bring it to life. And that's what he means by the time he gets to 5, 15 through 18 when he says, look carefully how you walk. And then he gets to this point and he says, do not get drunk, which leads to debauchery. Instead, you as a group of people, be filled with the Spirit. Become who God has made you to be. Don't settle. Don't buy into this mediocrity that's out there, that somehow this low-rung Christianity. Jesus hasn't just called us to avoid something. He's called us to join him on something. We can be different people. And that's what Paul's getting at in this word, finally. He says, finally now, he says, be strong. That's where he's building towards. That word be strong comes from this Greek word which means to have a capacity to do something. I don't know how many of you remember science class. I used to be a science teacher and we always used to talk through the difference between potential energy and kinetic energy. Does anybody know the difference? Oh, good, we got one. Good, your teachers would be so proud of you. Way to go. Potential energy I learned about, and I also learned about kinetic energy this weekend at Thanksgiving. My brother-in-law asked me to help him move something, and it was a large chest, and I was going to grab one side of it, he was going to grab the other side of it, and I was wearing flip-flops, and I didn't happen to see the water. Now, the whole time I'm standing there was all kinds of potential energy. And the second that I begin to move and turn it into kinetic energy, my feet begin to do this. I was doing this thing on the water. And all of that potential energy came down on my tailbone and I landed there and I learned about the difference between potential and kinetic energy. (laughs) Kinetic energy is painful. Thank you. Amen. Now what he's saying here is, is this strength that he's talking about is like potential energy. We have the God of the universe who is our dad, who is our father, who now has all authority in heaven on earth. He has it all. He has all power. But his point is, is that now I must be strong in it. Now that word is passive, meaning I have to let him do it to me. Now what he's really getting at here, which also I think is a core underlying problem of what's gonna stop the church, is this proud self-reliance that we have in all of our lives. We think we can do it. It is from the oldest of the old, clear down to my little one-year-old, Jason, is that he thinks he can do it. We have a pride, a self-reliance. Now here's what we got to understand when we talk about what hinders the church. We are weak. I almost want to have this repeat back to me, class, but I won't. We're weak. Built into this understanding is that God is able, he has all the potential energy in the world, which means we are weak. And the moment that I forget that I am weak, we're gonna learn later when we get to 1 Peter 5, is that this is exactly where Satan wants me. I think I've got it. I think I've got it under control. I think I can somehow wrangle it. And in this, Paul says, no, in his strength, his story, his how he's building this particular world. And then he says this next word, strength, which means a capacity. Not only is he able, but he has the capacity. And that last word, might, means he can actually do it. Now, this becomes key. I sit down with so many people as we wrestle through things like 
like abusing drugs or alcohol, when we talk about pornography, when we talk about controlling our tongue, all these different things that just beset us. I don't think we believe that the God who raised Jesus from the dead can change us from those things. But Paul says that's the only way. He gets us to that point of helping us to understand that. That's the first way when he says, this is how you're gonna hinder the church. But then he comes in and he helps us understand the next thing, that you might be able to stand. See, I like that. Is that he's the one who's able, he's the one that enables this capacity to be able to stand. Now with that, when we talk about this, it begins this capacity to stand. He's now gonna talk about us, what it is that exactly we are facing. What we're facing, he says, is the schemes of the devil. It's a Greek word, methodeia, which literally means, like, kind of sounds like a method. There is a method to which Satan works, and by the way, he is great at it. He's had thousands of years to perfect it. When we talk about the devil, we talk about Satan, we're talking about this one that rebelled against God, Revelation 12. He's the one that caused havoc in all of humanity, Genesis 3. He's this one that controls even governments, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. He's this one that causes problems in and amongst God's people, 2 Thessalonians 2. He is this one who roams around like a roaring lion. In other words, we have to understand not only this aspect of our story and who we are and our desperate need, but we've also also got to understand this reality that there is a real Satan who is powerful. Now we're going to get to this point that greater is he who is in me than he is in the world. But Satan is real and he's powerful. Now how does he scheme? We learn in Ephesians 2 this kind of the beginnings of understanding of what it means that he schemes but he's got a whole world that he's talking about in this particular context in which he gives an oversight to. All of those that don't know Jesus Christ he is the prince of the power of air and there are groups of people that are sons of disobedience that he has a control over. That, doesn't, that means that it doesn't matter if they're religious or they're the most flagrant sinner on the planet Satan has control of them. He operates in such a way to keep them there and then we learn that the other thing that he does is that he goes after them through their, look at that word up there, passions of our flesh. That becomes key to this. If you wanna understand how it is that Satan comes at us, he is wily and he's crafty and the way he's gonna come at you and the way he's gonna come after me is the passions of our flesh. In James 1, 13 through 15, he talks about this idea that, that literally you can't say that I'm being tempted by God, but then he, he uses this analogy, and I love this because I love to fly fish, is that Satan takes and he takes out the string and he starts fishing in front of you. And he throws the bait down and when you land and grab and hook, you're done. Now for those of you that think, oh, well, it's Satan's fault. It's not, it's your flesh. But the idea is, is that he comes after you. Now, how does he come after us in the United States? Let me just, let me just go through this for a second because I think this is important. The way that he comes at people in the United States is through what's called naturalism. Now, this is just a word that's starting to explain a philosophy or worldview in which everything kind of existed as natural properties and causes and kind of supernatural or spiritual explanations are excluded or discounted. In other words, he tries to get us to think that he's not really there. And not only does he try to get us to think that he's not really there, but then he gets us excited about other things. One might be nihilism. Now, I hope none of you are nihilists because nihilists don't have any hope. 
They think this whole world is just kind of careening down and so it's all lost. There's no hope in the world. But there are people that get to this point because they do not understand the reality of how Satan's getting to them. The other group of people would be the materialists. In other words, stuff is important. Now this one becomes a little more close to home. We love our stuff. Boy, I was sitting in this uh, doctor's office or physical therapy office. My daughter was doing physical therapy and I looked down and there was an off-road magazine. Now anybody that knows me knows I have nothing to do with off-road stuff. But suddenly, have you ever seen like a totally big jacked up truck and you just think, I would look great in that. (laughs) I was imagining me pulling up to my home in my big old truck, honking on the horn. You know it's going to sound like this. Or something, you know, I don't know. It's just going to. And there it is. And my wife comes out, my kids, you know, we just leave them there because we don't really want them to come along anyway. And so we go off on our truck. I mean, I was just, I was having visions. Why? Because we want stuff. We're about ready to enter into the stuff holiday. This is what my mom said to me. Hey, Todd, you all have enough stuff, so I'm not going to give you any stuff this year. Don't tell Grandma I said that, by the way, Brianna. Why? Because we just have stuff. And the more stuff that we have, then we have to find a way to keep having more stuff and coddling that stuff and using that stuff. And Satan, after a while, is just doing this. I got you. Hedonism, pleasures of life are the main point. He goes after suddenly things like, you need not just a vacation. You need a vacation in, I don't know, Nepal. You need the greatest vacation ever. It's about experiences. I need that next great experience. I need this thing to happen in my life. And Satan then goes after it in such a way where he says, that's right. You need that experience. You need that pleasure. You need to then, not only when we think about vacations, you need to go and look at something you shouldn't look at. You need to go drink something that you shouldn't drink. You need to go for that next thing. And the one thing that I'm learning about myself as a hedonist is also at Thanksgiving, you need a little bit more turkey, stuffing, (laughs) potatoes, gravy, pumpkin, Pumpkin pie. Let me show you what hedonism looks like. Right? I'm a hedonist. Last one is humanism. We all then feel bad about ourselves, so we're going to go do nice things for people. We're going to make the world a better place. Now that we have everything, now that we've experienced everything, now that we're at the top of the food chain, Now let's go help the plebes to feel better about their lives and give them what we have so they can be miserable just like us. Satan just after us. Fishing and fishing. And it's not just him. When he talks about this scheme, there's an organized reality to what he does. It's organized in such a way that there's a demonic reality that it's probably most of you have never probably been actually tempted by Satan, but there are true, real live demons that are out there that are also sitting there. And in fact, not only are they sitting there fishing, the pond is great. They're out there and they're finding you and I and everybody. And what's going to stop the church is us getting these things slowly wrapped around us to where we have no time anymore to enjoy God and enjoy his people, to join him in what he's doing. He just slowly sits there and fishes. Until finally, what has it done? The church just starts to stop. 
It's his scheme. But there's something really cool about this. See, on one side of it, though, we would think, okay, Satan is real. But I think for us sometimes, we think our wrestle is in a lot of other places. On the rare occasion that my wife and I disagree, our wrestle is not with flesh and blood, Paul says, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, the reason that my wife and I ever argue, the reason that I do anything I do is because I want to, and there's Satan sitting there going, go get it. He's fishing and fishing, and we start to now understand that the chaos that's in this world is caused by this grand schemer And once he gets us, here's the thing that that I think is so key to this. He gets us by tempting us, but then once he tempts us to buy into it, then he becomes the accuser. And he sits there and holds us down because any time we get into sin, we do what Adam and Eve do, we hide. And so let me just say this to anybody in here that's hiding. You don't need to hide because the gospel that Paul presented in the book of Ephesians is a gospel, and this is where it's important. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. God's grace is extravagant and huge and forgives anything, and this sin is not meant to be kept on the inside in secret exactly where Satan wants it, but it's meant to be brought to the surface so that you might find life. I kind of like this Ephesians. One time I was speaking to this youth group and, and I get all done and this kid comes up to me, never been to church in his life and he walks up and he goes, that Ephesians dude is amazing. <laughs> so it's not only that there's a real enemy, but here's the key also. There is a real God who provides real means of dealing with the arsenal of Satan. Paul says this statement, put on, he says, the whole armor of God. And, and he's trying to talk about it. Do you understand that the whole armor encompasses everything of who we are? You have the capacity to resist the evil one. You don't have to just be led along, you know, like a hook in your nose to this next thing. You have the capacity to resist. And he also says this, that you may be able to stand the evil day. Now that's important. This armor that he provides for us is not something that we put on one time. When you go back and look at this idea of put on the whole armor of God, he means literally to ongoingly every day put on this armor that we're gonna look at in a little bit. I've even got a cool toy. No, I really don't. But put it all on, but put it on every single day. Why? He says because you will be able to withstand in the evil day. Now what's the evil day? You ready? Today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, dot, 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 until Jesus returns. So therefore, you all, I do, have the capacity via the power of God, the work of the Holy Spirit to do this. Now here's the other key about it. When I was oftentimes taught this, or even when I spoke to kids about it, boy, I would go into all the different pieces of the armor. I'd be like, here's your helmet, and here's your shoes, and here's your belt. You know, I'd be like, Missing the fact, though, that it's not an individual endeavor, but look that word up there. See, put on the whole armor of God. It actually means y'all. Paul was from the South. Y'all. Y'all put on the armor of God. Now think about how much of a contrast this is. 
Sin tends to put you into isolation, but what he's talking about here is not going into isolation. He's talking about going into now groups of people. The reason that we believe that y'all need to hang out with each other is not just because we like to just get you to hang out with people. We are desperate for people in our lives because I can't accomplish this on my own. It is impossible. I have to have other people that help me to put this thing on. Now, what is it exactly that's in this armor of God? Well, first of all, James tells us, though, that it comes from this place of grace. In other words, I have to now get to this point where I can't do it, but I have to understand that God gives grace to the humble, that the means by which I'm going to be able to resist, the means by which I'm going to be able to do it, is that God is going to give his grace into it. Even earlier on, Paul talked about this idea of giving the devil no opportunity So then what are these things? Well, he says in here, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstance, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So what does that mean? Well, the words that are up there are truth, righteousness, gospel of peace, faith, salvation, word of God, and prayer. Now, on one level, we might get to the end of those and go, oh, I'm so thankful God has given me these. But listen, this comes back to the idea of kinetic and potential. I feel like most times we look at those things and go, oh, those are great. Prayer is a wonderful thing, but then we never pray. I love the word of God, but then we're never in the word of God. I love truth, but then sometimes we struggle with truth. I love righteousness, but then practicing righteousness is a whole other thing. I love the gospel of peace, but dang it, I'm angry. I like faith, but dang it, don't ask me to practice it. I love salvation, but I don't really understand and impart it. These whole words are used in this way. Now, here's the key to this. These words are meant to be lived out. Prayer is meant to be lived I don't know how many of you have ever read John Piper before, but he talked about the difference between prayer being an intercom and prayer being a walkie-talkie. Has anybody ever read that before? In it, he talked about in one aspect that prayers, on one end, we view it as this, this little intercom to which we call God and we say, you know, God, um, I could really use a bag of chips. I could also uh, really use a beer right now because I'm watching a game. I don't watch football because they kneel at the anthem. But, you know, basketball. And um, not only that, but could you take my kids out and play? Thanks. But that's what we turn prayer into so often. In fact, most times I hear people pray, it is make my life better. Fix my knee. Fix my bunions. Fix this. Fix that. We never once stop to think, God, if you need this to be in place, keep it there for me to be a more humble person in need of your grace. We also don't get to that point of desperation and need. See, this prayer is meant to be lived out. The way that Paul talks about it, it's in all things. It's meant to be stretched. It's meant to be a fabric and a part of our life. It's the atmosphere that we're supposed to live in. It is this reality that presses down upon us and the reason I don't think we pray, this is just my little guess because this is the truth of my own life, is I don't believe that there is a real war going on all around us because if there was a real war, I'd be on my walkie-talkie going, God, unless you show up, everything's gonna fall apart. It's meant to be practiced. 
It's meant to be truth. It's meant to be lived in a real way. Paul says, do you not want to stop the church? The way that you don't stop the church, the way that you stand is not just to talk about these concepts, but to go live them. Go live them with groups of people. Go enjoy them and understand them. Do you want to find life and hope and expectation in your life? Man, go, he says, and practice these things with other people. Love them, know them, be a part of them. The Christian life is not meant to be a spectator sport. It's meant to dive in and get dirty and muddy to see the work of God do powerful things. One of the things that I struggle with the most sometimes is counseling. Not because I don't need to counsel, but sometimes I'm just a really impatient person. I want people to change now. And so they come in and generally, and they'll be like, you know, what do I need to do to fix my problem? Well, stop. No, like, really? Yeah, just stop. Okay, we good? Can we pray? We good? All right. (laughs) But it's those times when we stay in this and we bring to life truth and righteousness and gospel of peace and faith and salvation and the word of God and prayer. As those things begin to come down upon the life of a person, we begin to see the most incredible thing ever, either for the first time they experience life or they come back into life. And this is what Paul is asking us to experience in the church. Go get dirty and muddy and enjoy watching my power come to work in you. It's not a spectator sport. So where's the offense? Everything that I've talked about to now, that was important, but there we go. Everything that we've talked about to now, there we go, has been all about standing and resisting. So where does it push forward? At the very end, Paul gives us this little clue when he says, and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. A lot of you know I love to fly on planes because I get to talk to people. I was sitting next to a 22-year-old girl who's just finished school and I was talking to her about what she's doing. She wants to be a physical uh, therapist and I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting even on the back of my head. I'm really not interested, but I'm like, okay, you know, we'll talk, I'm kidding. So we start to talk about it and, and finally she looks at me and she goes, what do you do? I go, I'm a, I'm a pastor in, in Southern California. And she goes, oh really? She goes, what do you guys do? I said, well, we work once a week for about four hours out of the day, and then we just sit around and think high, lofty thoughts about God. Now, I, and I saw I was trying to explain to her the world that I live in and what I'm a part of, and I finally just looked at her, and I go, you know what I'm about? I'm about you. She had that weird look like, ree, 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 you know. I'm, not a, I'm no stranger danger. And she goes, well, like, what do you mean? And in there, we just begin to talk about the gospel. Now, if you're anything like me, sharing the gospel for me is a highly uncomfortable thing because I have a fear of people. Like, and if you don't, well, God bless you. But as we begin to talk, I begin to explain to her, you know, like, what what is this whole thing about? She's really never been in the Bible a day in her life, so I kind of worked from Genesis to Revelation in about an hour, and she kept listening, so I'm like, cool, we'll just keep talking, and I kept talking to her about what does it mean to now follow Jesus, and what, is it, what, are, the, what are the realities of what does it mean to follow Jesus, and we're sitting there, and we have about a half an hour to land, and I just looked at her, and I said, what do, you, like, what do you think about this? And she just sat there and kind of paused for a little bit, and she goes, I'm, I'm, I'm not there. 
But in a very cool way on that plane, the Spirit of God empowered me to go on offense. He empowered me to share this message. He empowers all of his people to share this message. Now, everything in me hoped that that day she was going to look at me and, you know, she was going to say, what must I do to be saved? And I would have looked at her and I would have said, well, say this prayer after me. No, I wouldn't have. I, but I just, I would, well, that's what we hope for. Why? Because every time somebody comes to know Jesus Christ to now go back all through the book of Ephesians, it is one less person that's in death, that's under the control of Satan, that gets used by Satan now to confront the work of God. And now that person becomes instead a follower of Jesus, bringing life and holiness to all to which they share the gospel. That's why we share it. I love foster care. I love the fact that my wife and I do foster care. But let me tell you something. The reason that we have foster care is because the church isn't doing its job in sharing its faith. I love the fact that we're gonna take care of these girls that have been in sex slavery and I can't wait to hear what what we're gonna be able to give them and join in what they're doing. But the reason that we have sex slavery is because the church is not doing its job. We can, we can pull every kid out of foster care and we can pull all these kids out of sex slavery, but unless the church comes in and changes lives, who cares? Because then we might just be giving people a pillow on their way to hell. Paul says, you want to know the offense? Pray for me that I'll be able to speak. See, this is a prayer I think we need to have more often. I don't know the last time I sat down with everybody and I said, hey, how can I pray for you? Well, you know, I'm having a bout of the gout. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Pray for even serious things like cancer. Pray for this, pray for that. I can't think of the last time somebody walked up to me and said, pray that I will open my mouth with boldness. Pray that I will join God in declaring the gospel to people. See, when I think about a church advancing and not being stopped, I'm thinking now about people that go out and begin to share Jesus and then these people come and and they embrace the gospel and we bring them into the church and then everything's perfect, right? No, it's messy and weird. It was like my Thanksgiving with all the little kids running around. I couldn't wait to get out of there. Why? Because those feet were going everywhere and I'm sitting there going, ah! But I wouldn't have changed it for anything. I think the church gets dull and lifeless because we think our mission is just sitting around. I think we think in the back of our heads that this is the church. The love boat. You like that? Where Captain Steubing is there to serve us when in fact the church is this. The church will end if we keep thinking we're on a cruise. And so as a shepherd here at Cornerstone, let me just say this. Whether you know it or not, there's a battle going on around you. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me just tell you right now, there's an evil one that's seeking, 2 Corinthians 4 says, to keep the truth of the gospel from coming to you. 
There's an evil one that is even in this moment wanting to tempt me not to say things or you not to hear things or whatever it might be. There's a real evil one that's there and it's a real war and it's a real battle. Now that doesn't mean we become militant because all those words that were just given were humble, were were truth, were love, were those kinds of terms. I don't want the militant church. I want a church that understands where the war is. Our war is not against politicians. Our war is not against even Hillary Clinton. Our war is not against Donald Trump. Our war is not against all these people. Our war is not against flesh and blood. It is against these spiritual forces that have aligned themselves to stop the church. And you all are a part of the greatest military movement of all time, the army of Jesus Christ, not militant, the army of Jesus Christ and one day Jesus Christ will not come back as a humble servant. He will come back as the victorious king and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But no, you can clap in a second. But until that time, we have business to do. So what I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna give you time because I don't know where you're at. I don't know if some of you right now are caught in the snare of Satan. If you're caught in the snare of Satan right now, there will people be up here that will love to pray with you. Get out of the secrecy. Find life. Maybe some of you are off on your own and not a part of other people. Get involved with people. Chris, raise your hand. See that great looking man with that mustache that I wish I could grow? Get involved. Share Jesus. Turn the potential energy of God into kinetic energy and see God do a powerful work in your life. Amen? All right. Father, thank you so much for today. Thanks for your word. Would you enable us to be the people that you've called us to be? Would you open our eyes to the spiritual reality of darkness around us, of an true evil one? And Father, would we though not find fear, but would we find hope because greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world? Father, would you rescue those that don't know you right now if they're here today? Would you rescue those that do know you that are trapped in sin? Would today be the last day that they allow Satan to keep them in that place? Father, would your spirit move them and cause them to desire to get out of it? Father, would you shake those of us that are lethargic out of our lethargy and apathy? And Father, would you stir us to join you, not only in our families and in our friends, but Father, would you stir us to join you in this city? Would this city look different because Cornerstone and all those other churches that know you decide to not be a a, a cruise ship, but a battleship, Father, please. In your precious name we pray, amen. Now, I'm gonna give you something to do on the way out. Um, Lisa, I want to invite up to you uh, the most important woman in the church, (laughs) my wife. On your way out today, here's what I want you to do. A lot of you have seen the map out here. I would like all of you to grab a pin and to put it where you live. All right, now find it on there. If, if, if you don't have, like we don't have Moore Park uh, um, on there, uh, we don't have the valley, and so it's just kind of Simi Valley, but it, there's places for you to put your stick pin. Now here's why. Every time that we come in, I want that wall to be a place of prayer for a while. One of the things that God's really had to do in my life is that I love this church, but God has started to, started to teach me to love this city, to love this area. And I think a church that loves the area it's in is a church that starts to see God do a powerful work. So would you put it there? Would you put it where you work? And wherever you might work, put a stick pin up there. Wherever you might play even, I don't care where that is. But what I'd love to see is these stick pins up there so that we can start to then see God do a powerful work in our city. Amen? Okay. Well, I'd like to introduce to you, Lisa. This (coughs) This is my wife. Can I have a bottle of water? 
And um, we have been married for 20, almost four years. Do you remember? 23. Well, I said I almost 24. Oh. <laughs> I've had a hard time lately remembering. <laughs> Who usually remembers? Oh, okay, anyway. That's a whole other story. But the reason I brought her up is we've been having all the different elders and their wives share. And um, I just wanted to give her a, a chance to share a little bit about her because one of the things you need to know, um, I had to pay her greatly to get her up here. Uh, my wife does not want to be in front of people. She wants to be behind the scenes. But what she does behind the scenes, I absolutely love. But maybe, do you want to just share a little bit about maybe how you came to Christ and just think it gets to know you a little bit? Yeah. Well, those of you that were here last week um, and heard a testimony with lots of um, cage fighting and mafia, and my story's nothing like that. It's quite opposite. I was raised in the church. Um, in fact, I don't ever remember missing a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, or a Wednesday night church service all of my growing up years. And not only did we not miss church, we were there 20, 30 minutes early. We sat in the same pew um, every week. But honestly, I loved um, being a part of the church. I loved going to church. Um, We lived life together. We really did. fond memories of families hanging out together, showing up at houses unannounced, um, spending the weekends together, helping each other out. Um, but So like a lot of kids that grow up in the church, there's not that one defining moment where you came to Christ. And in my life, there were many times I came to Jesus because I, um, somewhere along the road, um, Christianity for me became a set of rules. Um, I think in an effort maybe to be biblical, we add or take away from the scripture, and that leaves us with some legalism. And so in my mind, um, how I, I guess, went along with the rules, how well I did with the rules was my faith. And so anytime I failed in those areas, which was often, I would clear the slate and start over and have a come-to-Jesus moment and think, oh, I'll do it better next time. A lot of wrong thinking in there, as you can see. But high school, obviously, it was really hard to keep rules. And really, I had no understanding of why I was doing what I was doing, um, why I had to keep rules. I was tired of keeping rules. And that's my personality. I am a rule follower. So, um, But legalism can also breed a real judgmental spirit in your life. And so, because you're always comparing yourself. So as long as I wasn't as bad as the other kids over here, I was doing okay. And got to college where there were no rules, lots of freedom, and I found a lot of freedom, but not in Christ. <laughs> and because a church was so much a part of my life, I never missed a Sunday, still in college, no matter the condition I was on that morning. And my college pastor was talking about, was talking on grace that whole first semester of college. And honestly, that was a new concept for me. I don't know where I missed that along the way. But it was uh, quite freeing to know I didn't have to live by rules, rules that weren't even biblical. There was, the rules I had to live by weren't even, they're not even in scripture. So, (laughs) Um, but I learned, I started to learn that it was more of a relationship than a set of rules. And um, then we came to Cornerstone, and I think most of my growth has been over the last 15 years that we've been here just under the teaching and watching so many of you take huge steps of faith and seeing how God really is in every aspect of your life. I didn't see that growing up. Um, We lived in this nice little Christian um, comfort bubble, and I have a lot to be grateful, but um, that was hard to come out of, and still is hard. It still rears its ugly head, but anyway, that is my story. Yeah. (laughs) 
Maybe just a, a passage of scripture that's been like meaningful to you because we've asked, I'm asking some of the questions we asked the other elders. So what, what's a passage of scripture that's been meaningful? Um, Isaiah 55, 9, and I know so many of us have it, but it's been my life verse that for as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I think it was more than 15 years ago, we were going through um, some hard times. Our families were going through some hard times. We had just lost a child. Um, All the stuff had really propelled us to move to Southern California from Wyoming. And um, I had no idea what was going on. I had come into marriage with a dream and a plan, and that wasn't really working out. Um, So (laughs) I had to cling to this verse going, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know why we're going to California. We've been married. Um, Then we got here, and it had been 12 years. We still didn't have children. Um, So (laughs) looking back now, it's crazy to think um, that God had a plan. He brought us to California. He gave us a family, a church family, an amazing church family, and um, gave us a family that, um, sorry. That I never planned, but it's much better. Love you. (laughs) If you could, let me change this for you. Yeah. Just if you could say, as just a part of a member of this church, what is one thing you hope for Cornerstone? Um, and I don't know why I'm so emotional, but anyway, <laughs> um, I think what I love about Cornerstone, there's a lot I love about Cornerstone, but um, I love how our families have really taken a part in foster care and adoption, obviously, and um, it really is a reputation that we have out in county. Um, from For those of us that are, are in foster care, um, we hear a lot about Cornerstone and how the families are so involved, and I'm thankful for that, and so I think my hope for Cornerstone would be that we continue that. We see more families even engage in taking kids in or walking with families that are doing it, Um, and more than anything, this is going to be real emotional to do, (laughs) Um, Cornerstone has been a very safe place for some of our kids, Um, the foster kids. Um, So um, I just pray that we continue to be a safe place for the kids to come and to heal um, and the families and that we continue to walk with the families that um, are loving these kids and trying to um, have a place where God's going to heal their little body and their little mind. So, Anything else? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Can I have all of you stand up, please? Let me just pray for us. Father, we do believe you are powerful. You're able. You have a passion for not only your son, but your other adopted kids, those of us that know you. Father, we believe that you have a mission in mind. Father, we we ask for forgiveness that we tend to be people that live on the cruise ship when you've called us to be a part of something so much more. 
Father, thank you so much for what you've done in Cornerstone, the dent that you've allowed us to put into the works of the evil one, and that, Father, you've, you've entrusted us with so much. And now, Father, would you empower this church to be groups of people that not only join you, but join each other, not only seeing transformation in our lives, but, Father, in our area, in our communities, would you allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform people? Would you not allow us to get comfy and safe and secure, but Father, instead, would you keep us in a place where we are always dependent upon you? In your precious name we pray, amen. Have a great week.